And if you would now, please turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6, and verses 15 through 19. It's in your bulletin, or you can see it in context on page 917 of the Bible in your row. Like I said, today we're actually at the end of Christmas, if you're counting. It's the 12th day of Christmas, and tomorrow is January 6th, the day that the the kings celebrated uh, to come and see Jesus. We'll talk more about it next week. But last week and this week, our theme has been adoption. And there is no better theme to begin 2020 with. Last week, I quoted a famous theologian, J.I. Packer, who said that the idea of adoption in the Bible is the highest privilege of the gospel, higher than justification, because adoption is the thing that we are justified for. We are justified so that we can become the children of God. And this is a theme I hope that you will meditate on throughout the year, not just last week and this week, but the whole year. Because when you know the Father's delight in you, it changes how you live in the world. And in fact, this adoption, this fatherly love for you as a child, for us as children, is changing the whole world. So here now, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6 and 15 through 19, God's word eternally true. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. For this reason... Because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. Please pray with me. And now, Lord, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be pleasing in your sight, you who are our rock and our redeemer. Open our eyes, open our eyes, the eyes of our hearts, to see wonderful things in your law and grow in us 30, 60, and 100-fold what we sow there today. In Jesus' name, amen. How would you describe your relationship to God? This was a question asked of a pastor when he was interviewing for a position at a new church. Uh, And the pastor said, I was not very clear about what the interviewer meant. Was he asking whether or not I spent time in Bible reading and prayer that day? Or was was the interviewer wanting to know if I was harboring some secret sin? The interview clarified things for the pastor. What terms would you use to describe yourself in relation to God? Well, the pastor thought one more moment about it and said, well, I think as a servant and, and oh yes, a, a son. Now, the pastor said at the end of the day, someone else got the job, um, but that didn't matter much to him because of what the interview had caused to happen in him. 
that his answer to the question just kept echoing and re-echoing in his mind. I was nothing less than a child of the living God. He was a father to me. I knew that I was a son to him. What a privilege. Now, the pastor who didn't get the job was a man named Sinclair Ferguson. Uh, And I'm kind of glad he didn't get the job because he actually went on to keep thinking about that theme of adoption and sonship. And he wrote this little book called Children of the Living God, which actually is is just a marvelous little exploration of the idea of adoption and sonship in the scripture. Um, And it It also makes me feel good to know that a pastor at the level of Sinclair Ferguson had trouble at an interview at some point in time, you know, because he's, you know, he's kind of a hero. He's kind of a Hall of Famer. But I think my favorite sentence in this book of Ferguson's is, our sonship to God is the apex of creation and the goal of redemption. Our sonship to God is the apex of creation and the goal of redemption. But sonship is something that too often is on the back burner of Christian thought. Those inside the church barely take time to give it a quick head nod. Those outside the church have never heard of it. So we took last week and this week to focus on sonship, a very important idea. The goal of redemption, according to Sinclair Ferguson. Now, today's passage comes from a letter, and this kind of letter is also known as an epistle, which just means a circular letter meant to be sent around to all the known churches at the time, sort of like an office memo. Make sure everybody sees this. Carbon copy everyone on it. And now this letter is meant to be circulated around to the churches throughout all time, which means to us as well. And as we look at this passage, I'm going to use the words sonship. You'll hear me say sonship and adoption. I'm going to use them interchangeably uh, for the same idea. They're both legitimate translations of this term we looked at last week from the Greek, huiothesia, and it's in this passage again in verse 5. But what we need to look at today, the big idea is we must live in the delight of God because we know the depth of our adoption. So we need to think about the depth of our adoption, and we'll look at the why, the who, and the what of adoption. The why, the who, and the what, or another way to say that is the praise of glory, the father of glory, and the riches of glory. The praise of glory, the father of glory, the riches of glory. So the why of sonship is that it is to the praise of God's glorious grace. Now, at another place in Scripture, uh, Romans 11.36, Paul says nearly the same thing. He says that uh, from him and through him and to him are all things. Paul's doxology comes after waxing eloquent on election, the election not just of Israel's but of the Gentiles as well. So sonship is from him. Sonship is from God. The Father moves first. We see uh, sonship begin in the Old Testament, and it unfolds bigger in the New Testament. And probably the easiest place to see the electing love of God in the Old Testament is Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 through 8. It says, uh, God says, that it is not because of any merit that he chose Israel to be his treasured possession, but he freely chose to set his love on them and brought them out of slavery in Egypt. And what did God tell Moses to say to Pharaoh about Israel? In Exodus 4, 22 and 23, uh, God says, tells Moses to tell Pharaoh that Israel is his firstborn son. 
So sonship comes from him, from the Father first. That's what Paul is reiterating here. Just as sonship came to Israel, so it also came to the Gentiles. And all of this, in verse 4, was before the foundation of the world. And in verse 5, destined beforehand for sonship. Sonship for the Gentiles, then. Here's the, here's the, the, the icing on the cake. Sonship for the Gentiles, that means you and me, anybody in here who's not Jewish, is not plan B. And also, Israel's sonship is not replaced an unfortunate word that, that sometimes theologians use, but actually I would, I would like to say that it's enlarged. This enlarging of the family shouldn't be a problem because neither Israel nor the Gentiles were chosen because of their merit or because of their innate goodness or because of our innate loveliness or anything else, but everyone who is chosen as God's child is chosen out of the gracious will of God himself. Sonship is from him, sonship is through him. Meaning that the means by which all are adopted are the same. They are adopted through the Son, who is Jesus Christ. Again, in verse 5, it says, adoption to himself through Jesus Christ. And this is like a reiteration of what we quoted last week from J.I. Packer. Justification is foundational. And adoption is the higher privilege. What Christ did on the cross to justify us, to make it just as if I'd never sinned, justification. So, through the blood of Jesus Christ, Christians are adopted. Israel was also bought with the blood of a firstborn. Pharaoh was defeated by the death of his firstborn son, and all the Israelites were spared because of the blood of the firstborn lamb painted over the door of their home. Were the Israelites saved by animal sacrifice? No. The blood of the lamb on the doorpost was like a signed check. The blood of Jesus Christ, the spotless lamb of God, is the check cashed. Sonship is through him, both for Israel and for the Gentiles. The check signed, the check cashed. This idea is footstomped in verse 6. He graced us in the beloved. God the Father gave us grace through the Son, Jesus Christ. So sonship is from the Father, through the Son, and back to the Father. Sonship is to him. Again, in verse 4, we see that people are chosen to be holy and blameless before him, or literally, before the face of him. In other words, our lives, our lives, yours and mine, are lived in front of him, where God can see us. Now look, that's not meant to scare us. I know a man who grew up going to church uh, and was told by his Sunday school teacher uh, every week when he was a small child, uh, God is watching you, Charles. And living before the face of God is not meant to be a threat. You should never, you should never tell children that God is watching them as if it's a threat. Because living before the face of God is meant to be a comfort. Have you ever seen a child come running into the living room to where their parents are, and the kid says, watch me, watch me, mommy, daddy, watch, 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 watch. Watch what I can do. The child is agitated until the eyes of the parents are on the child, watching and seeing what they're doing. You know why? Partially because it just doesn't seem real to the child 
until mom and dad see it. At that moment, when mom and dad see what they're doing, something about it becomes more real. Now, okay, earthly children need to be taught that earthly parents cannot always give their immediate and full attention to a child, but the heavenly Father can always, without fail, give us his undivided and immediate attention. So we live our lives in full view of him, and that should be a comfort. And then in verse 5, it says that sonship is according to the purpose of his will. Now, I think it's possible to hear that phrase, according to the purpose, and feel like God could be sort of an authoritarian father. What he says is his purpose, and what he says is how it goes. And while the Bible does present God as sovereign over all things, this particular word, purpose, could also be translated good pleasure. The idea of purpose, in other words, here is God's benevolence, God's goodwill, God's kindly intent. So sonship is from him, it is through him, and it is to him. It is a sonship that is to the praise of his glorious grace. The why of sonship is that it is purposed from the Father, accomplished through the Son, and Christians live it before the face of God in the power of the Holy Spirit to the praise of His glorious grace. Now look, you are not going to find divine sonship like this in any other religion on earth. No other religion has this. Not like this. And, and isn't this kind of sonship the sort of thing that most people think is the inalienable right for all children? I mean, when we protest conditions in the world, conditions like slavery and racism and poverty and starvation, and even those who protest climate change, what is the battle cry underneath a lot of those things? We need to do this. For who? For our children. Children should be able to grow up in a world where there's not poverty, where there's not starvation. Uh, They should be able to enjoy the goodness of the world, and children should be able to live in a world where they're able to be enjoyed by others, especially adults. And here, Christianity is the one religion that says yes to that in a foundational way, in this doctrine of sonship. Now, when you see the why of sonship, it moves you to ask about the who of sonship. The who and the what of this sonship are going to be seen more clearly when we look at how the Ephesian church uh, caused Paul to break out in thanksgiving and then in prayer. So beginning with verse 15 there, uh, Paul describes what he saw going on in the Ephesian church. He had been hearing of the Ephesians' faith in Christ and their love for all the saints. So Paul is saying, in other words, that the spirit of adoption is at work in them. Because when you have received the heavenly divine love of God, that love works itself out in your life, especially in how you treat others. So Paul sees in them the things that he would expect to see if the spirit of adoption was at work in them. And this moves him to thanksgiving. He sees this at work. And in fact, in verse 16, he says that he has not stopped giving thanks on their behalf, remembering them in his prayers constantly. So we can see with Paul that their faith in Christ causes them to live differently with one another. Now, isn't that what people outside the church are looking for from people inside the church? That our faith in Christ causes us to live differently with one another. 
And honestly, aren't we looking for that from each other too inside the church as well? Uh, Groucho Marx is quoted as saying, I would never join an organization that would allow someone like me to be a member, right? Uh, But that's the paradox of the church, friends. Uh, The good work of the church in the world comes through the things done by its members, by its sinful members. There's an organization that would allow even Groucho Marx to come in and would say, don't stand outside, come on in. And I'm glad for that. Whenever you see something good happening in a church, the glory goes to God who works through imperfect people, imperfect people like me, imperfect people like you. Paul sees God at work in the imperfect Ephesians, and as a result, he gives thanks for them. So first, it's the thanksgiving Paul cannot stop giving as he hears about the Ephesians. And now, what is it that he is praying? The second thing. It says in verse 17, he is asking God to give them the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. And he goes on, but let's stop here for a moment. Here's where we need to first see the who of adoption. Because Paul doesn't just pray to God. I mean, at least in a generic way, like we, you know, sometimes pray, Dear God, please bless so-and-so. Dear God, help so-and-so. Paul is more specific than that. God of our Lord Jesus Christ. God, the Father of glory. We just saw that the why of adoption is to the praise of His glory. The who of adoption is the Father of glory. Have you ever wanted to be the son of a father of glory? I mean, let me say it this way. Have you ever wanted the privileges of a particular sonship? Even more plainly, have you ever wished that maybe you were the child of a doctor so that you wouldn't have to worry so much about making appointments to go see a doctor? Have you ever wished that maybe you were the child of uh, the person who owned your favorite restaurant so you could always eat there? Uh, did you ever wish any of these things? Or, or, you know, did you ever wish that your dad was a home builder or your dad was an auto mechanic? Um, then you have wished for the privileges of sonship or adoption. You have longed to have a father of that kind of glory. So what are the privileges of being a child of the actual father of glory? Uh, let me go back to my funny examples. If you were the child of a doctor, on the one hand, it'd be nice, but on the other hand, you'd see how a doctor's office works a little differently. Some good, some bad. If you were the child of a restaurant owner, same thing, right? Yes, you would eat there all the time, but uh, your eyes would also be open to the restaurant business in a whole new way. Some good, some bad. And the same thing is true of the privileges of sonship for a home builder or an auto mechanic, right? But what does Paul say about being the child of a father of glory? He says that you are given the privilege of the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, and that is like getting to eat at the restaurant. And then he says, you have the eyes of your heart enlightened, and that means you get to see what the restaurant business is like, but in this case, it is not some good, some bad, Uh, Because when your father is the father of glory, that means that every glorious thing is yours to take in. I mean, we often say uh, this phrase, all truth is God's truth, but likewise this is true. All glory is God's glory. 
And Paul prays that as the Ephesians and us know that we are children of the Father of glory, that we would see more and more the glory of our Father in every glorious thing we experience on earth, especially the work of Jesus Christ. Uh, I was at a memorial service yesterday for a Christian woman uh, who was a nurse, who took a mission trip to Africa and became close to the young man who was her translator, And she later spent her money sending this young man to nursing school and helping him uh, go to college and get that certification. The glory of a man going into nursing. The glory of a man being helped by a woman who became a mother to him. The glory of love among two people of wildly different countries and cultures and races. It all happened because these two lives had been changed by Jesus Christ, and they reveled in the glory of the Father, and it changed how they were able to treat one another. Have the eyes of your heart been enlightened to see that all glory is God's glory, because He is the Father of glory? But Paul doesn't stop there in mid-sentence in verse 18. He goes on to give us the what of adoption. The what of adoption is riches of glory, and these are hope, inheritance, and power. So let's see the rest of Paul's thought and prayer there in verse 18. Having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. So first and quickly, hope. Now, we could say much about hope, uh, the hope to which we are called. Um, and this morning, let me, let, let me say this. We read great books and we watch great movies because we love stories of hope. We want to experience love that does not part. We want to experience uh, escape from death. We want to see good triumph over evil. The stories you read and love most say something about the aspects of hope that you're currently longing for. So here's one personal example. Uh, I just finished watching the first season of The Mandalorian, uh, which I'm loving. I'm loving The Mandalorian. But I had to sit and think about it for a little bit. What's the hope in this story? What is my heart drawn to in it? Uh, That a man who lives by a rigid code of honor can encounter a love that transforms him and fulfills the code in a way he never experienced before. That's the hope that my heart is drawn to in The Mandalorian. Have you asked yourself lately, what is the hope in the story with which you are currently enthralled, whether it's a a movie or a book or a TV show? Paul says it takes God giving you the spirit of wisdom and revelation to open the eyes of your heart to know better the hope you're longing for and to see how the hope of Christ, in other words, the hope of becoming a child of God, is the fulfillment of that hope. And then there's, uh, you know, I can always, you know, whenever you you open up hope and hope is in the the passage that you're preaching, uh, you could sort of like stop there and start the sermon over again and just do a whole sermon. Hope always deserves a whole sermon. I'm going to move on. Then there is inheritance. The phrase more fully is his glorious inheritance in the saints. 
What is his glorious inheritance? Here it is not quite uh, meaning a thing, uh, you know, the thing that we mean by inheritance. Like, when I die, I give this thing to you. That's an inheritance, right? Here, it is an inheritance that belongs to God, that he shares with all of those who are part of it, that make it up. The Old Testament idea of Israel's promised inheritance may help us here. So if you think about Genesis 12, uh, verses 1 through 3, that is when God calls Abraham, and God promised the patriarch Abraham three things. He promised him land, he promised him seed, and he promised him blessing. And, and I've, you've probably heard me say this before, which should clue you in, that this idea of land, seed, and blessing of God to Abraham, it's important. The land belongs to God. It's, Abraham, it's, it's his inheritance in that sense, but when Abraham's descendants come into that land, God's inheritance is shared with them. Seed, meaning descendants. Again, a child was given to Abraham by God's miraculous work, and the child and the children who come from him were to share in life as God's chosen people. And then blessing, this too belongs to God, and he gives it to Abraham and to his descendants. He causes those people to be fruitful and multiply, which is another way of expressing Old Testament sonship. The blessing is having God as the father of the nation of Israel. So what is this glorious inheritance that Paul talks about here in New Testament terms? How has this hope been transformed in Jesus Christ? The capital of the Old Testament land was Jerusalem. The land promised in the New Testament is that there is a new Jerusalem that will come down out of heaven where God will dwell with his people once again and forever. The Old Testament had a literal father-to-son descendancy that it was talking about. The New Testament talks about spiritual children in Christ that we now, across racial, ethnic, and cultural lines, are made into an uncommon family in Christ. Now, the blessing is the same. It is sonship, having God as our Father, but now we see how much greater it is. God is not just a Father on high, almighty, covered by thick clouds and darkness, but He is a Father near to us, who puts His Spirit in our hearts that we might be able to cry out to him in trust and intimacy, Abba, Father, like we talked about last week. That's the inheritance. And finally, we see his power. God has the power to do all these things that he has promised. The promises he made to Abraham, he has used his power to fulfill in Christ. He worked this plan over hundreds of years, and he kept these promises over the course of thousands of years, and he has done it so that today, you who hear this message can participate in this promise too. When it says immeasurable greatness of his power in verse 19, it's talking about power that is beyond the usual mark, power that can't be put on a scale. If this power were an earthquake, the Richter scale wouldn't work. Uh, If this power were a loud thunder or an orchestra, you couldn't measure it in decibels. If it was on the back of a truck, uh, there's no scale off of the highway that you could drive the semi onto and get a proper reading. If it were a length, there was no tape measure that would be long enough that you could wrap it around it. This power is beyond our ability to mark out. Because how can you measure the power it takes to raise the Son of God from the dead? And how can you measure the power it takes to make someone a child of God? 
Most importantly, how can you measure the power of love of a parent for a child and for such children? The hope, the inheritance, the power, these all belong to the adopted children of God. The why of adoption is the praise of His glory. Sonship is from Him and through Him and to Him. The who of adoption is the Father of glory. He gives gives us all the privileges of being a child. He gives you eyes to see it. All glory is His glory. The what of adoption are the riches of glory, a glorious hope that fulfills all the smaller hopes you have, a glorious inheritance that God shares with us and makes us a part of, a glorious power at work through the ages to accomplish all these things. So now, what will you do with it? For some of you, it's time to go back and meditate on this again until it moves you to something like Uh, You know, it's like taking down a photo album and looking through the old pictures until uh, love moves you to pick up the phone and call someone that you see in those pictures. Delight in the photo album of God's love for you. Remember again and again until that love moves you to give love away to someone else. Now, for others of you, you, you wish that this is a story that could be true. I hope I'm trying to make it sound as compelling as possible that even if you don't believe it, you think, man, I would love for it to be true, even though I think it's not. It might be a little fuzzy around the edges. You're you're drawn to it, but you're not sure. For you, it's time to take, take the time to formulate your real questions and ask them. And I'm happy to talk with you, and other members of this church are happy to talk with you. Because the truth is, when you delight in your adoption, then you can live out of the fullness of it. And that love that you've received is a love that's changing the whole world. Let's pray. Abba, Father of glory, give to us the spirit of wisdom and revelation. Enlighten the eyes of our hearts, some for the first time, realizing that all glory is your glory, especially your glorious grace in Christ that fulfills our hopes gives us an inheritance, and works as a mighty power throughout all time, even in our lives. Put the power of your spirit of sonship at work in our hearts until we can cry out to you as Abba Father in the faith of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.